Music isn't just an art form. Music is life. No matter how old you are or where on the planet you find yourself, I guarantee you there are rhythms and melodies that will speak to the core of your soul. I mean, it's a part of what makes us human. The baseline for me, though, is hip-hop music. As a wordsmith, I have a deep-rooted connection to language and poetry and rhythm. I have a passion for exploring and discovering within the vast landscape of human sounds. Be it drums from West Africa, funk from South India, or folklore jazz from the high Andes, I know it the moment I hear it, because it moves me. Because the fact of the matter is, most genres are influenced by one another and share the same deep root. Despite whatever differences we have, music connects us together. My name is Jason Diakite, a.k.a. Timbuktu, hailing from Sweden. And on today's episode of This Moment, my co-host Marcus Samuelson talks with one of the most influential musicians within contemporary jazz, pianist, composer, and educator Jason Moran. Tune in as Moran talks about his beginnings, the current state of the jazz industry, and more. Starting in three, two, one. Okay, so I want I want to go right into it. All right, this is first of all, Mr. Jason Moran. Welcome to this moment. We are so happy to have you. How you been, brother? I've been making it. I've been, you know, like you all, um, keeping my hand in the fire. You know, um, and uh, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm doing all right though. My family's good, and every day, you know. Take us back a little bit to Houston and your upbringing, when did music come in to your life? When did it become like, wow, I'm not just liking this, this is, this is part of my journey? <laughs> yeah, I wish I, yeah. You know, the, the great thing about a, a, a journey into music is at some point, for me at least, it was forced upon me. And that point was for many years, like six or seven years of my parents forcing me to play piano. As a kid, I don't know, it's not fun to play, but, but I did get, totally infatuated with Thelonious Monk at the age 13. And I thought, this is who I want to be. <laughs> you know, uh, he became the icon that, um, I don't know, seemed to represent everything possible about the piano. So I spent as much of my time uh, learning as I could at that age. And, you know, as a teenager listening to Thelonious Monk, you're not common. <laughs> So you got to find your crew quick <laughs> to make it through those tough years, you know. Your father collected albums. He collected music. Uh, were you allowed in to go in there and check it or no, stay stay the hell out? Which Which one was it? <laughs> It's funny. He had a, re a record room with about you know maybe three thousand records in it, and then on the door of the door of the of the room it said, "Keep your ass out." <laughs> <laughs> that answers everything. <laughs> so, but it, well, I was like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I went yeah. in there anyway. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's great. Then it's the late '80s, you know. So obviously the height of Prince and Michael and pop culture, and then you know hip hop as well. Because when I when I think about Houston, I don't know what's in the water there because you know 
people like yourself and Robert Glasper and UTK and 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 obviously Solange and B, but and you the list goes on and on and on. And it's not just in pop culture; it's jazz. It is in every genre of music. What is it in Houston that makes it such a incredible place in terms of music. You know, maybe it's because we didn't necessarily have an identifiable sound. I think, you know, like, so New Orleans is only a few hours away and New Orleans, okay, that's a very rich sonic, black sonic history in New Orleans, right? Uh, uh, Chicago, right? You know about that sonic history of, of how blues migrates up the Delta to get to Chicago, right? We know about New York and hip hop, right? Like, so Houston... It can it has something else, right? It has like a mix of the blues, it has this gospel tradition, it has a, a jazz tradition, it has a country and folk tradition, you know. Uh and then I think maybe the other part is is that it's also one of the most diverse cities uh in America. And it's not necessarily that that everybody's kind of like mixing with each other, but I think, you know, you do grow up uh with the knowledge of the uh, of the Caribbean. And also of, you know, like folks from Asia, folks from Africa, right, folks from Mexico. So it is a kind of different meeting place than, say, some other cities in America. Um, and then that leaves the kind of road very wide open rather than very narrow, you know. Um, and so, yeah. No, I agree with that. The fact that in terms of food, Houston is by far, it is like a mini, it's right, like a major right. Queens in a way, right? You have... A, deep West African roots. You have Indian cooking like no other place. You have Vietnamese. So, you know, you're in the middle of Texas, which doesn't get credit for being diverse, but then you have Houston that is so diverse. You know, I'm constantly baffled by this, you know? Yeah, it's bizarre. You know, you know and the thing that also makes people run away from Texas is this other pervasive, oppressive element that lives and, you know, that you see so kind of, demarcated throughout the city, you know, and that's, that's the tragedy. That's the struggle. That's what people are trying to break down in this next election in the state of Texas. And, um, but it's also what, what, you know, kicked a lot of us out of the state too, you know, it's because the way that we were learning was not going to be supported as, as I might say, as an adult. And, um, so we, a lot of us came to New York to get the rest of our education. 
right. It goes from jazz. You're the one. <laughs> no, but I really <laughs> admire that, right? Like there is, it's jazz, it's hip hop. It goes into the collaboration at the Whitney. Like when you start a project like that, like going from musical composer to art in a different way, um, and that's never really been seen before. What makes you dare to go there? What gives you the guts to go there? You know, the beautiful part about black folks is is the, is is how we feel, right? And 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 it's interior and it's exterior, right? It's in the taste, right? It's in the sound. And and what I understand also about thinking, like let's say go back ninety years to looking at when Duke Ellington emerges as a force, and the, and how those men look in their tuxedos on this stage, you know, with this choreography, uh, with these dancers, with this backdrop, right? All that context that black music has had, right? And whether the context is of freedom or of oppression, <laughs> all of that then it becomes a frame, right? And I think when we discuss music, sometimes we think about the freedom, but I mean, we can't think about the freedom without thinking about that frame that inherently is kind of woven into, into how we produce sometimes. And when we hear and see something or experience something that is actually outside of that grid, we're like, wait a minute, what is that? And I think I've watched a lot of artists of all disciplines, whether it was Toni Morrison, who has saved me through the pandemic with the writing she has done, um, or, uh, or, list, or right now studying the life of Louis Armstrong and the loves he had in his life, and how a man like that has been misunderstood and, and resold to black people as an Uncle Tom, right? Um, these are things that are tragedies, right? And I think that part of the discussion about what happens to me at the piano goes further than that because only a small part of my life is at that instrument. The rest of it is being a lover, right? Uh, raising children, uh, walking the street, being a citizen of Harlem, you know? And um, that deserves much more fleshing out. And uh, so how do you get that into a performance space? So like, that's generally what I, what I think about is how do we make that road into this frame, you know, so that people can feel it. When you think about African-American music and American music to the world, you cannot deny African-American excellence in it. It's impossible. Whether you go from gospel to jazz to hip hop, funk, you, you name it, it's all the intersection is there. And what I think music has done so great it's, there are several institutions, being one of them, the Kennedy Center. How did your relationship with the Kennedy Center, besides being the artistic director and musical director in terms of jazz, but when did an institution like that even, okay, my work can enter in the walls like this? When did that enter for you? Yeah, you know, I mean, thank goodness that there are always somebody who's, you know, who throws you the ladder and says, okay, you got it, right? And that person was Dr. Billy Taylor, who, you know, he's the one who started Jazzmobile that, you know, is still happening here in Harlem many years after he has passed on. But he's from D.C., so he's like a serious, you know, dedicated to the power of Washington, D.C. and what jazz has done for the city. Um, but as he lived in here, here in New York, he also became the voice of kind of jazz. So you'd see him on CBS Sunday morning talking to the America about the power of the music. 
And in the 90s, early 90s, he went to the Kennedy Center and said, you know, I've been producing concerts for you all every once in a while, but why not we have a full jazz program, just like you have a theater program, just like you have a dance program, just like you have an orchestra program. And so they started the program in the 90s. When he passed on in 2009, um, they were looking for someone and somehow my name got on this list. And um, and I was really young when I started the job um, 10 years ago, but what I had no idea about what the future of the music could be was that you could then, much of the way I talked about walking into a place kind of like not only widening the door, but widening the frame, right? Or trying to pull down the wall. That I was saying the same thing that Dr. Billy Taylor thought about jazz. I thought about hip hop. So I went to the institution and said, <laughs> well, you know, we have jazz in here, but we know that hip hop is the most powerful form of music right now that has also gone around the world, just like jazz did 90, 100 years ago. And I said, we should have a, the first kind of like curated hip hop program at the Kennedy Center and we should get Q-Tip to do that. <laughs> and so we got Q-Tip. I don't know. I just felt like that was also part of my role about growing up in an era, watching music change around me, right? And watching it really change people's lives and uh, making sure that the Kennedy Center stayed on par rather than be behind and be reactive, that we could be progressive. And I think it was a really smart choice on their behalf to pick a, you know, someone in his 30s because the bandwidth and the runway you can have, not just being bringing them into relevance, but actually keep evolving that and staying curious. I wanted to ask you, what is jazz uh, connectivity? How has COVID um, impacted your community and your immediate community? How do you connect? And uh, yeah, what 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 does jazz in America look like in 2021-22? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's dire, right? So the state of the music has always been pretty dire once it left its popular state, which was maybe in the 1930s and 40s was really when it's at its height, right? But it's been a decade since that. So we've always kind of felt a bit of a, you know, you have to find your way in this, meaning you don't sign up to play the music because you think you're going to be rich and famous doing it. This is not the one. <laughs> you go to some other form of music. So there's already kind of like inherently a, a mode that we have in us to kind of just try to seek and survive. But I think right now it's really dire because there was already something happening in, in the country where the arts were already unappreciated. You could just say that as a whole, right? So funding is being taken from it and it's being treated as, you know, the arts is like some kind of delicacy, right? That, that only can be harvested for one day out of the year. I don't know. So we don't really get our diet in the right way set across the country about the power of the work. And uh, but it, within jazz in particular, also understanding that the country shoveled it out into the world as an export to say, oh, no, this is emblematic of the power of the country. <laughs> it was in Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, you know, people like that on these on these State Department adventures in the 50s and the 60s at a time when the country was doing the worst to black folks. Right. And the same 
for James Reese Europe and the Harlem Hellfighters in the First World War. Send them out there to, to act like the country. But they couldn't even fight on the same side as America, right, because of segregation. So it's the kind of thing where the music has already felt it, the burn of the country. And um, right now what I've seen artists do is really find their way back to the street. I mean, around the city, if I'm running through Central Park on the bike, I hear about two or three jazz groups, right? You know, it's what I hear on the street. I, I don't hear a hip hop crew on the street. <laughs> like, I, I don't hear, you know, like I might hear like a brass band, but you know, I hear music that is related to, to a kind of jazz improvisatory uh, culture that has kind of emerged on the street in a way which oh, I'm thankful for as a salve. But, you know, it's been deeply hard to watch venues be closed uh, across the country um, to try to find their way. And artists who already don't have any security are really, you know, at a, in, a, in a dire state. So trying to find organizations that can, that can continue to, uh, to, to help artists is, is, is a thing that we have to still do, you know. How restoring, you know, black culture, restoring our culture institutions. I worry about all of that coming out out of COVID. How do we put a value proposition of that? Because this is at the same time, Jason, that African-American wealth has never been bigger and African-American despair is gonna take a new term. So how do we get the wealth proposition to connect to restoring? How do we do that? Hmm. I mean, that's a big question. But one thing I would say I've seen in the city, which I thought might be a, a sign, was even before the, you know, the shutdown happened, you know, the city was kind of emptying out on the on the street level. You saw retail spaces closing all across the city because people are buying more things online. They don't need to have these you know, brick and mortar uh, storefronts anymore. And I just thought, wow, wouldn't those places become spaces for 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 any kind of people, right? So let, let's say activist organization or, or a band for a month or, you know, a, a potter or, you know, like an artist or, or a dance studio, all these spaces all across the city. It's what the artist Joan Jonas, she used to talk about New York in the 70s. She would say, there were all these holes in the city that you could kind of go take over. And I don't know if that's going to happen again, but I'd say that there's something, a kind of a, you know, there are going to be holes in the city. And I think it will depend on the arts to kind of come in and say, oh, this is what we can imagine for this neighborhood. And uh, I have a lot of faith in that because I've been watching enough people say, you know what, why are we waiting for somebody else to give us a key? Fuck that, you know? Uh, <laughs> I could I buy a key. The key ain't that much, you know? And I think that's a part of it, too, to stop, you know, the, the one that you're not waiting for the invitation anymore. Um, I think for a certain generation of artists, you I, I would say I hope, I'm hopeful that people like me and, and my crew will then take on that mantle that people like Dr. Billy Taylor did. Because it's kind of like our turn, right? Like, you've shown a lot of people what's possible in pulling in energy, pulling in vibrancy, uh, pulling in sound and taste and texture. And so you showed us this model, right? From, from a generation that's close, right? You said, oh shit, this is possible. And um, enough of us have been imagining it privately and now it's action time. Um, so I'm saying, hoping that after this, there'll be another 
another organization to grow. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Can you tell me a little bit about your incredible wife, Alicia Hall. And, you know, what I think is so fascinating, because you're both two incredible, you know, creatives offering your creativity to the world, but you also push it to each other, take each other to different level creativity. Uh, you know, how that's not always easy uh, you know, as a couple, as a marriage. And, you know, how do you guys work that out? <laughs> Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. My glib answer on this Monday morning is we fight every day. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's beautiful. <laughs> but also, you know what I mean? Like, but that's love, right? Love is worth fighting for. And, um, and you know, every, every day, and we've known each other for 25 years. We've been married for 17 years now. And I don't know, you know, Alicia comes from a very different cloth of, of black people in America who've been college age, I mean, college educated for generations, you know? Um, 
And so when she enters the field as a singer, she's also coming from a, tri a, a tradition of black music in her family that helped resurrect spirituals and bring them onto Carnegie Hall stages. Her great uh, uncle is Hall Johnson, a man who who transcribed the songs of his grandmother, the slave songs she sang, you know, the songs she sang, and then spread them out so that other singers could sing them, like Marian Anderson, songs he taught to them. Um, so like that's in her bloodline, right? And you know, her mother is like incredible editor, her father is like black finance, you know, and um, and here she is coming, bringing a kind of intellectual uh, fervor to music and to the dialogue around it that is not often taught in conservatory. And right now, what she's been doing as a, as a really great composer, and I would say a muse to so many people, <laughs> as a, is a muse is that she's now trying to unlock other future muses who are gonna kind of enter the field in the next 10 years or so. But she's unbelievable, yeah, yeah. Now, I want to twist this a little, turn this a little bit. So the twins are growing up and watching this, right? They see the dual epidemics. They see the dual pandemics with racism, uh, COVID, election. How did, how did you, Anisha, parents, how much do you feed them? How much do you don't want them to participate in and see? Like, how do you guys navigate as a family? I mean, fortunately, we, we send them to a school that raises activists. <laughs> so this school, Manhattan Country School, is really about making the kids activists. And so by the time they get out of middle school, they enter high school with a very, you know, powerful mind related to equity um, and to, you know, and to their fellow, you know, the classmates. And so... Um, so those kids are, they're, they're wired a bit differently. <laughs> I was, you know, informed by Chuck D, like you said. <laughs> my, my parents had the library of books that I could go pick out considering what did Chuck, Chuck D say in the lyrics and okay, find that book or whatever. But they, these kids are wired differently. So they're so wired differently that they are already confronting us as parents being like, well, you know, it's your generation that really messed up such and such and such and such. It's like, oh, okay. So they're, <laughs> so they're already kind of <laughs> <laughs> they are coming for to to right or wrong, and um, the other time I noticed that young young people were ready to to change was Alicia was doing a project about Black Wall Street in Tulsa about four years ago, and we went down. She went down to perform her piece in Tulsa, and in two days we spent at two high schools, and we went to this middle school in the library, and she was talking to her to the students about her process, but the students they had all of the knowledge about what had happened nearly 100 years ago in Tulsa. And what they were planning, they, these kids were ready to right the wrong. That's what they were working on as students. I don't know. And I have a lot of faith in, in young people because their bravery shows up in, in, the, in their power and in their bodies. So it's a thing that I also rely on. So we raise them to be as strong as they can here you know, and physically, and um, and we give them the tools of the arts to know that that's there to battle another kind of battle. Um, but you know, but you know, it's day by day with any parent, you know, with their child. What about the context and the conversation about race, and you know, how how do they 
think about that when they enter the world, not when they're in your house, obviously, but as they go out in the world in terms of opportunities, um, because they're of the generation that you always hope one day, right, that it shouldn't have impact, <laughs> but you know, we're by obviously not there. How do you discuss that as a family in terms of race? And, and well, they, you know, these are black kids and um, there's, um, we let them know that they are, that they, they have the treasures in their body already. And I'm not trying to tell them about all the barbs because the barbs are out there once we walk out the street and the barbs, are very apparent. I don't ever have to explain to them. And they approach with the question when they have it, but we really prepare them for that they, they live with treasures uh, within them. And they have to value those things first rather than the ill that will approach, right? So I want them to develop that inner core that is, that is, that is tough. And I might say Alicia and I are really tough on the boys. Um, and, and we don't pull punches much like our parents didn't pull punches with us about what it takes to be a decent citizen and, um, and, to, and to live and, and try to love openly. And our opportunities come out of enthusiasm for the craft that you cherish with all your heart. And if you can find your life you know, devoted to the craft or the thing that you love, life could be a lot easier. Um, so we really try to empower them to also follow their wherever they're going, like out, like right now, Malcolm is serious about Alvin Ailey as a 13-year-old boy, right? Like serious about it and staying in it. Jonas is serious about aviation, right? Like, so like staying on him, like this, because this is the age when, you know, if it, if it latches on, it can stay for life and you can, it'll still be struggle, but at least you have something that you're able to funnel your struggle into, you know, rather than self-destruction. Well, Mr. Jason Moran, I thank you so much for taking time out and coming to this moment. And uh, we're so lucky in Harlem to have the whole family in the community. And I can't wait to speak to you soon. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate you. Definitely, brother. All right. Y'all take care. Peace. And thanks to Jason Moran for providing us with some tunes. That's it for this week, folks, but we'll be back soon. One love and peace out. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.